Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm not going to Europe this summer. I may be the only one. We're going to talk about some interesting numbers regarding the huge amount of transatlantic travel this summer. Hello, Scott, and I'm the number two one not going to Europe. You had a fascinating Forbes piece looking at premium leisure travel as a replacement for missing corporate travel. Delta Airlines, for example, has been pushing the notion that premium leisure travelers have even better yield than business travelers, and the 20% to 25% reduction in business travel compared to 2019 levels is being replaced by premium leisure. Not so fast, says Ben. Why don't we start off with that question? Can premium leisure travelers replace business travelers person for person in airplanes? Well, I don't think so, Scott. I'm a fan of premium leisure travelers as well. I don't think they're particularly new. They're just more recognized now. But the big difference is that they don't travel on an annual basis the same way corporate travelers do. Corporate travelers might fly 10 to 15 times a year whereas a premium leisure traveler probably flies two to four times a year. The premium leisure traveler probably spends a lot more time on their trip. So if you're a hotel, you probably like the passenger more than the airlines because they're getting one airline trip but more hotel nights. The other thing is that premium leisure passengers are still paying for the trip themselves. So they're going to be more price sensitive on the airline side of things. You can be considered a premium leisure passenger if you pay for rooms at a Ritz-Carlton and buy an expensive cruise or pay for expensive excursions. But that doesn't mean that you want to pay a real expensive flight to get to all those things. So I think on a person-to-person basis, it doesn't work. I can see how in a given quarter, you might look at numbers and say, well, our premium leisure replaced our business loss. But on an annual basis, I don't think that's going to shake out. What do you think, Scott? You know, Ben, I, I think that's right, I, I, but I really think this is all about price. Uh, you know, Delta didn't start seeing the growth of, quote-unquote, premium leisure traffic until they started bringing the price down of first-class seats. And once first-class seats became a tempting purchase for a leisure traveler, in other words, a couple hundred dollars more, not several thousand dollars more, then you saw a lot more people saying, yeah, I'll pay for that. It's the same thing with 
premium economy international seats. It's all about the price point. Sure, I'd love to be in business class, but not if it's eight or $10,000 out of my pocket. Would I pay $2,000 instead of $1,000 to get a whole lot more room in the economy cabin? You bet I would. I'm at a place where I can do that. So the, the rise of the premium leisure traveler is really about the rise of the affordable premium leisure option. And, and I, th- I think this market was there. Um, I think airlines have made the market bigger by shrinking down the coach cabin and sort of forcing a lot of travelers to really think about paying for more comfort because there's so little comfort in the back of the airplane. But be that as it may, this is really all about price. I think that's right. And again, premium leisure is not new, but more and more people, since they can work from any location, are probably taking more leisure trips. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the trips have become more important in their lives, and they're willing to to pay uh, for a nicer airplane experience, just as they're willing to pay for a nicer hotel room or a beachfront room or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's right. It's just that airlines at the end of the day, Scott, are still an intermediate good, meaning that people don't really want to be on the airplane. They want to be where they're going. Yeah. At Spirit, for example, which we prided ourselves on carrying almost exclusively very price-sensitive customers, one of the biggest hotels that our guests would stay at was the Ritz-Carlton. And people were always surprised at that. They'd say, why would a Spirit customer stay at the Ritz? And I would say, because on Spirit, they're getting to the vacation. At the Ritz, they're on vacation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really true. But I I do think in people's lives, uh, quality has become more and more of an issue. Um, I think they've traded up in, in restaurants um, and, and dining out. I, I think some have uh, certainly traded up in hotels. Um, they've traded up in their automobiles. Uh, and I think uh, we've seen, because there is a lot of disposable income out there, um, we see people willing to pay more for a better experience. And, and I think airlines have been slow to offer the products um, that people have been looking for. Um, but now that they're getting closer, um, we're seeing more uh, uptake of it. I think that's right. Think about the kind of pictures people send you. Not that many send pictures of them in their seat on the plane. Yeah. They send the pictures from playing golf or being on the cruise or in the great view from the room or something like that. Yeah, that's true. Although if you look at uh, frequent flyer elite status sites, Facebook groups and things like that, people will post pictures of them enjoying their pre-departure beverage in their business class seat or domestic first class seat. Um, they, they're most likely celebrating the fact that they were the, the one person who got an upgrade on that flight. 
But for some of them, and I have friends who do this, the vacation now starts on the airplane and uh, they're taking the family business class to Europe because they want to sleep and um, because they can afford it. And, and because there are discounted, uh, or at least before this summer, there were uh, discounted business class seats that they could take advantage of. That's exactly right. And for some people, if you get the upgrade, your vacation starts on the plane. Yeah. Otherwise, it starts when you get off. No, and upgrades are so rare that people do love to brag about them. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of other notes, too, about business travel. I saw something interesting from Microsoft recently that said even as people return to the office, the number of Microsoft Teams meetings has continued to increase. Virtual meetings are really still expanding as part of our regular work routine and continue to replace many business trips. I was also interested in some numbers recently about passenger traffic at the New York area airports. Newark and Kennedy are back above 2019 levels, but LaGuardia is still depressed in terms of passengers. I think LaGuardia is very much Manhattan's airport, and lower numbers there really reflects the change in business travel. There aren't as many business meetings going on in Manhattan. Not many people are going to the office, at least on Mondays and Fridays. So it's an interesting development for the airline industry since New York is such an important market and the largest in the world. Yeah, I really thought this was fascinating, Ben, when you mentioned it. In writing about business travel, I've looked at things like New York subway ridership, which is still real depressed uh, in terms of numbers um, post-pandemic, and certainly commercial real estate in Manhattan and other downtown areas where companies just don't need the footprint that they used to have. And so all that really is affecting business travel, and it's, uh, it's fascinating that it's easy to see at LaGuardia. Uh, you would think that would be one of the busiest, most prized uh, airports in the world um, because of its location so close to Manhattan. But to see traffic still depressed there, even when Newark and Kennedy are back uh, full bore, boy, it's... Um, it's a really telling sign that uh, business travel has really changed. And so much investment has gone on and is going on at that airport. Certainly Delta, for one, is going to want to see that change. Yeah, all of them. Um, And, you know, that's another fascinating part of it because uh, you could say in the past, well, LaGuardia is such a dump, people don't want to go there. And certainly Newark and Kennedy, particularly Newark, tried to make a lot of hay out of that. And, you know, they've got their own construction projects going on, and there's been a lot of a lot of work at each of those airports. Uh, but LaGuardia, boy, the $8 billion or so that's been spent there, um, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think in the long run, um, LaGuardia is going to, you know, be a thriving airport even without the business traffic, uh, but it's going to take uh, take longer to rebound than the others. I think Delta is still going to be happy with its uh, rather impressive facility there and 
the market share that that facility helps drive to Delta. Um, so let's not worry about them too much, but, um, but it really is an interesting thing to watch. I agree. And it's not for sure that LaGuardia is as tied to Manhattan as I think it might be, but it certainly seems there's got to be a correlation there. Yeah, absolutely. So one advantage Newark and Kennedy have over LaGuardia is transatlantic travel, a lot of it. OAG had an interesting report out recently that showed this summer will have a record number of transatlantic flights, 111,400 to be exact. Obviously, they aren't all departing from or bound to New York, but that's 530 flights a day between the U.S. and Western Europe. Ten years ago, in 2013, there were only 80,416 flights scheduled in the summer. That means the number of flights has increased 40% over the past decade. The changes in the transatlantic market tell you a lot about the industry. For example, there are more flights but fewer airlines than in 2000. 23 years ago, there were 45 airlines flying people across the Atlantic. Today, only 37. The number of destinations has consolidated too as airlines consolidate back to core networks. It's an interesting example of how there can be more competition and yet fewer airlines. Another interesting note from OAG, 90% of all those flights this summer will be on two-engine aircraft. The Boeing 777 is the most used, accounting for 22% of the trips. The Airbus A330 is a close second at 20%. And here's one more curious fact, Ben. United has the most flights scheduled between the U.S. and Western Europe at 18,923. Delta is second at 17,700. American is third, a somewhat distant third, at 12,655. I was surprised a bit by those numbers, Ben. I didn't realize United had 50% more flights to Europe than American. Well, I'm surprised too, but it doesn't surprise me completely. If you think about it, that New York and Chicago, two important United hubs, are much, much bigger markets for Europe than Dallas or Charlotte or Miami or even Philly, where American is big. So some of it might be that retrenchment to strength and American strength is more south than east. Yeah, no doubt. I think it also shows the strength of United's partner, Lufthansa, that that maybe Lufthansa in Frankfurt is a better partner, a better connecting setup than British Airways in London for American or Air France in Paris for Delta. Um, you could work KLM and Amsterdam into that picture too. Uh, for Delta, but the strength of the Star Alliance uh, between the U.S. and Western Europe, I think, really comes through those flight numbers as well. I agree. And if you think about it, through its lifetime, Lufthansa has had to be more dependent on connections than British Airways. London is so big as a traffic base mm -hmm. that even though it's a good connecting base, mm -hmm. British Airways didn't need the connections 
as much as Lufthansa did. So they built a real specialty in those connections. Also, for lots of places you might connect into Eastern Europe or into Northern Africa or something, Frankfurt is less circuitous than London because you're not flying as far north to eventually go south. So I agree that Star might be better, but I think part of it is also because of Lufthansa's expertise. Yeah, very interesting. And and of those three, I would certainly pick Frankfurt as the easiest one to connect at. Yeah, I agree with that. Having connected there, London, and Paris, I'd pick Frankfurt if I was connecting too. Yeah. I don't know that any of them are as good as connecting in the Middle East if you're going on to India or someplace further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as we've talked about before, Scott, it should be a really good summer financially for airlines. Strong demand and capacity constraints, despite the high transatlantic numbers, have driven fares higher, and so airlines should be making a lot of money. There's been no recession so far in ticket purchases. It could come this fall, as some economists predict. But for now, at least looking at airlines, the economy is strong. And Scott, it may be a bit of deja vu, but this seems almost like what we were saying last year at this time. And we all got surprised at how strong the fall was. Yeah, I think that's really true. I In following airline stocks, I've been surprised, too, that there's been some move. You know, several months ago, American, for example, uh, was about $13 a share. It's about $16 now. Uh, But you look at the strength of uh, demand for seats um, and, you know, they're going to have a terrific summer. I think there are worries about the fall. And, and you're right, it may be deja vu all over again. I think there are worries about costs at airlines uh, because of the labor contracts that are, that are coming. Um, but Delta just reinstated its dividend. They don't seem too concerned about the contract that they've, they've already signed. So a really fascinating time in terms of airline economics. And uh, oil prices are down a bit. So I think they're they're quietly celebrating that. It's um, it's going to be really interesting to see how this year ends up, but it could be spectacular. I agree with that. And that might stop all the talk about, is the pandemic really over or mm. not? Yeah. And they're doing it without 20%, 25% of the business travel that they used to enjoy, which again, is just remarkable. It is, especially when you think about the fact that the 20% missing paid much higher fares than who is replacing the 20%. Yeah. Maybe not as much higher as the premium leisure, to Delta's point, but still higher on a per mile basis. Absolutely. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors, We want to thank our sponsor, DoHop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. DoHop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, 
and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. We also want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And let me add congratulations to Pratt & Whitney for winning a contract to put the GTF engine on United A321s that were recently ordered. Uh, it's an interesting development there um, and, uh, and a good win for Pratt. Absolutely. Ben, in this week's mailbag, we had a couple of aircraft fleet questions that have puzzled listeners. I'm not sure we can fully answer them, but I'm pretty sure other listeners probably can fill in the blanks for us. So please, let's hear from you. Go to airlinesconfidential.com and use the questions and comments form at the bottom of the homepage screen. First, Adam from Atlanta says, Hi, Ben and Scott. I know there's no need to say this, but I figured I would. I'm a big fan of the show. I'd like to ask either of you if you knew why EASA allows for A330, A380 common type rating, but the FAA does not. Any insights would be helpful. Thanks. Thanks for that, Adam. We appreciate that very much. On your question, I can't find anything from the European Union Aviation Safety Agency saying that there's a common type rating for the A330 and A380. EASA's type rating list shows the A380 in its own rating and the A330 and the A350 listed together. I wonder if that common type rating for the A330 and the A350 is what you are referring to. Indeed, the FAA does not have a common type rating for the A330 and the A350. And Scott, if it's true, and we'll ask anyone from Airbus to let us know for sure, if that's true, I'm sure Airbus is working with the FAA to get that common rating for the 330 and 350 if it's already true in Europe. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the 330 and the 350 make sense because they are twin engine planes with the common standard Airbus cockpit. They are very different vintages, however. The A330 first flight was in 1992 and the A350 in 2013, more than 20 years later. Airbus says the common rating is based on cockpit commonality and handling similarities. Pilots do need some difference training between the two airplanes. Airbus says eight days without simulator time for transitioning to the A350 from the A330. The FAA's type rating roster does list the airplanes separately. It's a similar situation, I suppose, to the common type rating 
for the Boeing 757 and 767, though I've known some pilots who questioned whether that really made sense since the Twin Isle 767 is a much different airplane from the 757. Boeing and airlines love the common type rating because it reduces training and staffing costs. The A380, giant super jumbo, is a completely different beast because it has four engines and is so much larger. That's exactly right. And you're right about the manufacturers liking to stress commonality. They want to do it in parts, in pilot training, in maintenance training, and in all kinds of things, so that once you buy one of their planes, there's an enormous incentive to buy the next iteration of that plane. And it's it just saves a lot of money, and it certainly makes sense if you have uh, the whole line of A320s, right? You can a pilot can fly the A318, 319, 320, 321. It's all the same cockpit, so it makes sense. Uh, same with the uh, with different vintages of the 737, but I think when you get into really different sized airplanes, um, even if the cockpit is very similar, I think as the eight days of transition training shows between the A350 and the A330, there are differences, and I think you'd have to be careful with a pilot from one airplane jumping right into the cockpit of a different airplane. And, uh, and not having time to really familiarize the differences. That's right. And as many of our listeners know, eight days is still pretty good compared to starting from scratch to get the first type rating. And the big savings there is no simulator time required. Simulator time is what's in such demand and, and really so expensive. That's right. Well, Scott, Joe from California has another fleet question. Hi, guys. Love the show. Alaska, as you already know, retired most of Virgin America's aircraft, 53 A320s and 10 A319s. Why do airlines sometimes scrap newer aircraft? Is the cost per seat mile too sufficient for airlines such as American to purchase Alaska's second-hand A319s? Well, Joe, thanks. I think the answer to this one is easier. It's hard to take 63 Airbus airplanes when your entire fleet and competency is in the Boeing 737. So it's not like Alaska didn't like the planes or didn't know enough about them. It's that it would have complicated their maintenance, their pilot training, and their operations enormously to fly a mixed fleet given the size they are. Now, American, with almost a thousand planes, can have a big fleet of Airbus and Aerobodies and a big fleet of 737s. And they believe that they get the scale advantage of each airplane. And then when they negotiate a deal with Boeing and Airbus, they have a credible threat to move to the other manufacturer if one of them doesn't step up. But for an airline Alaska size, 
they're just not big enough to do that. So getting rid of the Virgin America fleet probably made sense for them. And taking those planes probably made sense for American since they were already flying it anyway and were going to keep flying it. And I'm sure they were good airplanes. But some of them are still sitting on the ground, I think, Ben, which is really interesting. It it can be expensive for an airline to take in some other airlines' airplanes into the fleet. You have to get the maintenance schedules aligned. Uh, you not only repaint the airplanes, but put in all new interiors. And I think sometimes it may just be more economical to take brand new A320s, uh, particularly with the A320neo coming, rather than uh, than than take an older airplane. Um, I'll, I'll be surprised if those Alaska airplanes sit for very long, since uh, they'd be great fodder for a startup or, or for others. But it is kind of an interesting development. It also, the other thing I was going to mention about Alaska is they really love to market up in Seattle that they are all Boeing. And now they can go back to the all Boeing claim. You're right. The other thing a different, even newer airplane brings is likely a different cockpit configuration. And so even though a pilot at American might be typerated on the 319, when they get into one of these Alaska planes, some of the things might be in different places. And so they may have to do differences training for that or spend the money to truly make the cockpits the same too. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember some really fascinating stories I was involved in um, on mergers where, you know, the coffee pots don't fit and all that kind of stuff. But you get into the cockpit and I think it was uh, it was differences between Northwest and Delta. Northwest had a bit of an odd configuration and I, and I won't get it right, but switches in the cockpit forward was off instead of on or something like that. And so you can see how difficult that would be if you're used to pressing a switch forward and that's on, and all of a sudden you get into an airplane where that's off, uh, that could be real trouble. And so it, it can be really tricky. Well, and certainly you want your pilots to be able to jump out of one plane, use the restroom, get a cup of coffee, jump on the next plane, and you don't want to introduce those kind of risks. Yeah. Absolutely. Great questions. Look forward to many more and, uh, and, and fill in the blanks, listeners. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. And if you're one of the ones who's actually taking a trip to Europe this week, please tell us about it when you get back. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.